You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. One day, Dutch Reagan, as he was known at this time in Dixon, Illinois, was returning from a team practice and walked towards his family's house when he saw a man face down and in the snow. It was his father, Jack. Reagan picked him up, and the noticeable but not unfamiliar scent of whiskey was strong. He brought him inside. This was not an unusual incident in the Reagan's home in Dixon. Jack was a shoe salesman, not a successful one. He tinkered with many businesses during the Depression, moved his family around, went to business trips. Many of them turned out to be little more than binges, and for the most part, Jack ceded the raising of the Reagan children to Reagan's mother, Nellie. As Michael Deaver would describe it, after lugging Jack to his bed one night, Nellie would sit next to Ronald Reagan at the breakfast table and explain that his father was suffering from a disease. It was not his fault, Nellie would say. As an adult, Reagan would very rarely tell this story. All he would say is, she was right all along. Without getting into too much armchair psychoanalysis, historical figures deserve to be considered as multidimensional as living human beings. We do ourselves a disservice, them a disservice, history a disservice, if we create flat, one-dimensional figures. It has been suggested that eldest children of alcoholics can excel as a kind of family hero. They overwork to earn the respect, perhaps, that the family doesn't have in the community. Two other presidents, Bill Clinton and Gerald Ford, had to deal with drinking fathers and, in their cases, abusive fathers, not something that we've had recorded about Jack You know, it all could be deep psychoanalysis or just practicality. The eldest son in such a family might have to keep a good head because no one else is. For Reagan, it engendered in him a sense of generosity that most people that knew him described. Deaver talks about how, as governor, Reagan was constantly going on these mysterious errands, so much so that as a key aide to Governor Reagan, he had him tailed and looked at his desk for any clues. So in one case, 
Governor Reagan mysteriously darts out when there's work to be done. He looks at the governor's desk and he sees a letter. Reagan read his mail and continued that as governor and as president. In this case, he was answering a letter from a soldier in Vietnam who was miserable because he missed his wife and would miss their wedding anniversary. He asked Governor Reagan to place a phone call to his wife. Reagan did more. He picked up a dozen red roses and, to what had to be a surprise, went to the wife's home and personally delivered them. On another occasion, Governor Reagan was asked by a mother for help with school supplies for her children. Into the mail went a $200 check. Or there was the time Deaver saw Reagan taking one of his best suits. Now, we're talking about $1,000 suits in the 1970s. Taking one of his best prize suits and wrapping it up, folding it and putting it into a bag. What are you doing? Deaver said. Well, man had written him and said that he wished he could look as good as Reagan did on TV for a wedding that he was going to. And the man said, we're about the same size, Governor. Despite the protests of Deaver and other aides, maybe just buy a cheaper suit and give it to him. The suit went and was delivered to the man. You have to say this. Reagan was considerate, polite. He was not a person that said whatever was on his mind. He listened more than he talked. When he talked, like the actor that spent nights up rehearsing lines, he got the parts down pat. When he talked, he knew what he was to say. The feelings of others mattered. Here's what Deaver says. Having accompanied Reagan to Buckingham Palace, I can tell you this, I can personally attest. It didn't matter who you were. Ronald Reagan treated everybody equally, whether you were the Queen of England or the servants. Reagan's popularity was personal, and it wasn't always as large as it seems. People were not always in lockstep with everything that he came into office with and what he wanted to do. I mean, because he had two landslide elections and a strong first year, there was such momentum. His average approval rating, though, throughout his presidency was 53%, lower than his two successors, H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. He had some low moments. December 1983 at 35%. Similar numbers in 87 in the wake of the Iran-Contra scandal. That being said, he had some very high moments too and finished well, which is probably something important for a president's legacy. But the right track, wrong trap question that Gallup has asked since the 1970s, that personal Reagan approval versus policy Reagan divide in America in 1986 and 87. 45%, just 45% are saying that the country is on the right track. This while awarding Reagan high personal popularity ratings. The personal Reagan wanting to help and the policies that didn't seem to reflect that same quality. May 25th, 1986, saw the nation on its feet, in the streets, clasped hands, six million Americans at once, in a line that theoretically went across the United States. 
It started in New York City, where Cardinal O'Connor joined with Liza Minnelli, Brooke Shields, Yoko Ono, and others on the George Washington Bridge. Other stars, Kathleen Turner was at the St. Louis Arch. Scott Bayo in Philly. Michael Jackson in Youngstown, Ohio. Governor Bill Clinton in Arkansas, all holding hands. In Springfield, Illinois, 50 men dressed as Abraham Lincoln joined hands, while 54 Elvises joined in Memphis, while Hell's Angels and nuns held hands together in Pittsburgh. In SeaWorld, Ohio, a whale named Shamu lent a fin to the cause. Jesse Jackson holding hands with others in Iowa, Navajo Indians in the Southwest. This chain of hands across America ended in Long Beach, California, where Reverend Robert Schuler and Kenny Loggins, John Stamos, Robin Williams, and Anthony Daniels, the actor within C-3PO, were at the end of the chain. This was Hands Across America. Hard to imagine today, except in badly colored video with people with strange haircuts. It was real, though. I can tell you that on that day, I was in line with my mother and holding hands on the other side with a stranger. And I don't know, you felt it. I mean, to this day, I can still think about it. Maybe a little bit of a kind of electric shock as you thought about the chain of hands that was going in one direction from New York and then all the way to California, all these Americans at once. Even if somewhere around the Rockies, you know, they were forced to use rope lines because of the impassibility, it didn't matter. I mean, you felt it. There was no social media in the 1980s, no flash mobs, no Twitter to keep you informed of where to be at all times. So this event, with the whole nation involved, needed a staff of 400 and a Super Bowl ad to get it going. This event went 1980s viral. It raised some funds, $20 million short of the goal that it had, but a lot of money then. The funds were raised to fund soup kitchens for the homeless and America's hungry. It was part of a national focus on the problem, for better or for worse, not as much in evidence today. Indeed, in Washington, D.C., President Ronald Reagan and Speaker Tip O'Neill join hands in recognition of the problem. This event has become a symbol of 1980s poppy sentimentality, perhaps, you know, we are the world and Band-Aid and things like that, but I think it symbolized something else. The problem of homelessness, of the hungry in America was known in the 80s. People were not comfortable with a complete policy of inaction on this. And the policies that caused homelessness, once identified, were not popular in the later Reagan, President Bush, and Clinton presidencies. Change those policies. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's not like the word homelessness came out of nowhere in the 1980s, but it was almost like it did. The focus on those not living in four walls and a roof. We walk quietly. We try to forget it. We'd rather not see it. It's the most basic thing that no matter what rational calculus one develops in politics and policies, it's their bad decisions. It's the market cycles. It'll get better. They'll be back up soon. It's our American government to allow freedom, even freedom to lose. All of these theories, all of these policies, no matter, it is difficult to do. No American mind can justify it. The solutions aren't bipartisan, but that feeling is. And in the 1980s, those people were the focus of nightly TV and newspaper articles in a way that hadn't happened before. And a focus that also isn't happening right now. It's a very difficult thing to measure those who cannot be counted in households or in employment statistics. And it's hard to say that the 1980s were actually a time in which there was more homelessness either than the 1970s or today. We suspect there was. Though it should be stated, the streets were not empty in 1979, nor were American cities shining with golden gleam. American cities were grittier in the 1980s. They had not yet seen gentrification, the entry of wealthy or middle-class rents, the new ballparks. They were almost to a city scaling down from their population peaks. New York was coming off a bankruptcy, and a municipal workers, including the police, staged several strikes in the 1970s. Los Angeles grew its population at half the rate in the 1970s as it would in the 60s. Cleveland, once America's sixth largest city, was now 18th. Mayor Dennis Kucinich was forced to go into default as the city could not pay millions in banknotes. They could no longer borrow. Nationally, crime is up 10% in the 1970s. Violent crime rates double. Murders up 45%, 70 to 79. This is a sad picture. And all of that picture occurs before Ronald Reagan arrives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. That's something important to note as we talk about the rest of what we must talk about. Yet clearly something was occurring in the 1980s. The early Reagan presidency was a time of two big recessions. One in 1980 and the second in 1982, which put people out of work. So in Lafayette Park, across from the White House, there was a Reaganville that develops. And they are mirrored across the country. Activists like Mitch Schneider assured that the homeless would be visible during this period. He leads a group that takes over an abandoned federal building and uses an informal shelter and then shames Reagan and the Congress to provide funds. Reagan's administration in 1983 estimates that there are 200,000 homeless in America. This figure is greeted with derision. Mitch Schneider says 2 million, but that was equally fictitious. It is likely during this period, 1980s, anywhere from 400 to 600,000 people. In the 1980s, the first studies are being done. An Urban Institute shelter study shows that in 182 American cities, the shelter population tripled 
between 81 and 89. A review of studies in 1997 confirms an increase of homelessness during the 1980s. The percentage of Americans living below the poverty line makes things clearer. Poverty was starting to slow in the 1970s. 12% of the population in poverty in 1975 11.8% in 1976. It spikes to 13% before Reagan takes office, but then keeps going up. 14% in 1981, 15% in 1982, still 15% in 1983. As Reagan seeks election, mourning in America in 1984, it's still 14% higher than it was in 1975. It's still 13% in 1987, and it never reaches that 1975 mark again during his presidency. In fact, it won't reach that low level of 12% until the year 2000. Viewed by race, African Americans suffer most. 32% in poverty in 1980, before he takes office. Already higher, more than double the national average. It's 35% in 1982. Cities, already in bad shape in the 1970s see big reductions under Reagan. Yet Reagan was described by friends and opponents as gracious, cared about individuals, and though personally wealthy, he wasn't overly enamored with wealthy people. In fact, aides insisted the best way to win an argument with Reagan was to put the argument in individual terms or to put some person before him. You know, break down costs for average people, tell a narrative about a soldier or senior citizen. David Stockman, his OMB director, who wanted him to go further with cuts, Concluded, Reagan would never do it. He was always thinking about who would be impacted by it. And once he did, he'd reduce the level of the cut. At the same time, though, his public commentary on this issue did not reflect Dutch Reagan of Dixon. One problem uh, that we've had, even in the best of times, and that is the people who are sleeping on the grates, the homeless who are homeless, you might say, by choice. The comments were outrageous, as was his story about a welfare queen that was never substantiated. He was told personally by Speaker O'Neill, who had his staff search for this person that was cheating the welfare system, to please stop these public statements. They were just untrue. Reading once again David Priest's excellent The President's Books of Secrets, which is about the presidential daily briefing. Priest is a listener to this podcast His book's on Amazon. Great book to understand presidents and their use of the daily briefing that they get. Reagan almost always focused on the human dimension of foreign policy. This according to National Security Advisor Bud McFarlane. He wanted to know about the people that he was dealing with, say Thatcher, say Gorbachev, other nation's leaders. How many kids did they have? What were their interests? Yet there was his policy. In the first episode of the series, we spoke of Reagan's lightning-fast legislative victory and his manner of controlling Washington like a president should. He made it look easy, like Nixon or Carter could not. We spoke in episode three about how Cato praised him for holding the line on domestic spending despite chiding him for increasing the overall budget. There was, however, a cost to these achievements, and that cost was very visible at the time. I suggested that while Reagan emulated FDR and didn't feel he was dislodging the New Deal, he did take aim at LBJ and the Great Society. One of the noticeable cuts 
in the 1981 Omnibus Reconciliation Act was a cut in the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Reagan, upon taking office, assigns a commission to look at housing, and they say, you know, there's really no problem with the affordable housing supply in the nation. In his budget, new builds are frozen for government-funded housing, except for senior and disabled units. HUD's budget goes from $64 billion in 1981 to $36 billion in 1982. By the end of his presidency, HUD is at $22 billion, according to OMB. Across the United States, we go from 6.5 million low-cost units in the 1970s, 5.6 in 1986, with much more demand. He proposed block grants, which would take federal dollars going directly from the federal government to municipalities and to give them to the states to decide. The states, he argued, knew more than Washington. The problem with this is that states may decide not to give to cities. That was the complaint of the Conference of Mayors at the time. The mayor of Richmond said, The record of 20 years says states would not be concerned with cities. Reagan argued that governors were honorable men and would do right by the cities of their states. And while the block granting was about control and not cost-cutting, it was also about cost-cutting a little. The total programs that were wrapped up and sent to the states as block grants were cut 28%. This is a very abstract concept, but I think there's two quickies we can, we can look at here. Federal aid was 22% of city budgets. And by the end of Reagan's second term, it was 6%. So you can see the pain going to the cities. There was individual pain as well. Direct food assistance goes in 1981 from $30 billion to $28 billion in 1988, while the population increases. It's hard to get a personal feeling about some of these abstract budget cuts because they were so long ago, and we don't really know the results. But in one area, there's still a lot of concern and complaints, and that is in aid to higher education. And the conversion during this period of many students to financing through direct payments and grants from state and federal government to students borrowing on student loans. From 1980 to 1985, there was a $594 million cut in direct student assistance and a $338 million cut in the Pell Grant. Low-cost loans, where the government would subsidize the interest, was limited to households of 32,000. It didn't matter how many children the household had. Devin Fergus, writing in the Washington Post, 2014, says, my kids pay too much for college. I blame Reagan. And he cites the cuts and the conversion to loans. He also says that it should be no surprise that states, after Reagan, cut education aid and then got reelected by a huge majority in 1984. It was a signal to states who did some of their own cuts as well and increased tuition fees. Reagan, as a governor in California, had introduced tuition increases. Now, Fergus might go a little far, and, and I think anyone looking to Reagan alone for something as complex as the higher education problem and the problem of what really is a major cost for middle-class Americans and then for their children throughout time through student paying student loans, it's far more complex than that. Reagan did indeed cut the Pell Grants in those early legislative packages. By 1985 to 1986, Pell Grant funding was higher than it was in 1980. Since the 1980s, college costs have gone up because we're at a point now 
where other presidents, Clinton, Obama, have reversed the trend. There's 6.1 million Pell Grants, far more. Costs have gone up so much that the percentage of those grants and what they actually cover of a student's education has many reasons for this. Colleges are not good cost cutters. Don't engage always in very aggressive negotiations. Spend a lot on non-academic spending, on buildings. There's a building boom in colleges in the 90s and 2000s. Athletic programs and the like. They don't specialize enough. You know, your college offers everything, even if it's not what the college is known for, which in a business would be something that would be a no-no. It's a whole podcast to discuss how complex the increase in costs of education is, but that's a quick note about it. In a perverse way, all of these domestic cuts focused more attention on those who hadn't gotten much attention in the past, the poor, the forgotten, and related to this issue, especially in the public mind of homelessness, it's the issue of mental illness. And we have to be careful here because one of the things the data in the 1980s established after some fighting between academic studies is that not all, not even most, and far less than most people would think the percentage of homeless are also mentally ill. At first, as researchers focused more on the issue of homelessness, 70s and 80s, they thought so. I mean, a Boston Shelter study came out that 64% had some kind of mental condition of those living in the shelter. Later studies in Los Angeles, Baltimore, brought that number down to 35% with a very small percentage having the most serious conditions of psychosis or schizophrenia. Other factors... Substance abuse, substance abuse in the family by parents, domestic violence, layoffs. In the 80s, again, we have to remember, it was a time of, a, of another great recession, though they didn't call it that, in 1982. Real estate prices increasing. Those contribute equally, if not more. It's important because if people think, oh, those crazy people, they won't help. And when that Boston shelter study came out and said the 64%, experts said, you got to redo that study or you got to like change the perception out there because people aren't going to want to help. There's a reason you have to discuss this because I think this is one of a few issues where people are bitter about the Reagan presidency and the treatment of mental illness and homelessness, but homelessness is a very abstract concept. And you'll hear things like Reagan closed the mental hospitals and the like. Closing hospitals, deinstitutionalization is really something that starts in the, in the late 60s going into the, the 1970s when many states were doing it. Now, as a governor, Reagan has a role here, passing what was then a bipartisan legislation to close psychiatric hospitals and to deinstitutionalize. Now, almost everyone thinks that this was not handled well by California and many other states, and you had people wandering the streets, leaving hospitals and wandering the streets. And it led to a conflation of homeless, mentally ill, as if all were. What does happen in the Reagan presidency is that part of that initial 1981 cut is a cut in the community mental health centers, which was an attempt to catch the people who had been deinstitutionalized, who had either been sent back to families or on the streets, and to provide help for them, to provide funding for that. It was something that the Carters pushed, Rosalind Carter in particular, 
and it is eliminated. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, you do have to go back to the time. Inflation is extremely high. This is very hard for us to understand. I think it always has to be in perspective because that was the thinking at the time. And there was definitely a thinking that it was too much borrowing or something, too much spending by the government that was leading to the inflation. It was just something that they couldn't break the back of until after the 1982 recession. And so that goal of cutting government did also have an emotional tenor to it at the time because inflation was just choking the business of the nation. That led to the momentum to just cut, cut, cut to where the cutting became a goal. Later during his presidency, I think has to be remembered that during his presidency was constantly a time of evaluating the impact of those cuts. And some of that was not even visible. Some of the studies are not done until the 1990s. Homelessness was also a big focus of the media at the time, leading a few critics to speculate that perhaps homelessness was drummed up by the media to deal Reagan a large blow. Perhaps the word homelessness appears at the time of the Civil War in the New York Times. It appears in many articles during the Depression. Concept's not new. Homelessness was much greater during the Depression, certainly in the 1930s, than in the 1980s. Yet the news stories spike in the 1980s. Look at the New York Times for... A hundred stories mentioning homelessness in 1979, and then over a thousand in 1989. And there's been less coverage of the issue with later presidents, and there's less coverage of the issue now. You rarely would see a TV news network begin its newscast talking about homeless. Reagan didn't just turn a switch and cause a homelessness problem, as some critics made it seem. There were economic forces at work. Legislative philosophies like the deinstitutionalization, the desire to change from payments direct to people rather to cities and institutions, the increase in, in high rentals in cities with, with governments, including New York City, doing what they can to make it easier for you know, developers to build high rent housing so that the city looks better, but clouding out some of the affordable housing. Some of that had nothing to do with the White House. Yet it is clear that the overall idea of massive housing benefit cuts and some social cuts and shifting from urban to suburban devastated the cities of America in the 1980s. One of the reasons it's evident is that the policy of later presidents, Bush and Clinton, was to provide more of an increase to those cities. But even in Reagan's own second term, the homelessness issue, the mental illness issue, education issues, get a revisit, particularly when Reagan loses the Senate for his party in 1986, when Democrats take over. 
even in his second term, you see different policies than the first. And it starts with a little-known act called the McKinney Act. Stuart McKinney was something rare in politics now, and even rare then, a GOP liberal. In March of 1987, McKinney representing Connecticut, he along with Dennis Quaid, Martin Sheen, several homeless people, several homeless activists, Mitch Schneider, all slept outside on the street in Washington, D.C. This sleepout that McKinney conducted helped push the legislation bearing his name that provided direct funding for the homeless, almost $1 billion. And that act still exists today and is, has been continually funded at varying amounts. Two months later, Stuart McKinney was dead. He died of pneumonia related to a new disease discovered in the 1980s, acquired immunity deficiency syndrome. He claimed that he had contracted the disease uh, during a blood transfusion. This was a common statement made in the 1980s where it still wasn't easy to come out to reveal that one was gay. It was still difficult, particularly for politicians. We mentioned that McKinney died of AIDS. Some say that uh, it was hastened by him sleeping out in the cold. And so McKinney's become certainly a hero for this issue. Has been involved in the AIDS situation months ago and that I've already been given to research matters on it. Um, the Center for Disease Control has been involved for some time. Rules will continue to be updated. We have recently asked that $12 million be reprogrammed for research on AIDS. But of all the considerations about Ronald Reagan's presidency, AIDS stands out as one that unifies critics with the bitter feelings about Reagan. The criticism that you'll hear is, you know, I'll never forgive Ronald Reagan for AIDS and what he did. That... Should be better spent working against this plague on the local level. What are you going to do about this? Well, Governor Quick, we're going to replace that. We have uh, we appointed a new uh, chairman of the, of the commission. We think that it has to have a variety of skills because it's a very complex problem. So we have as much representation as we can get from the business community, from medicine, from education, and so forth. And uh, we have two vacancies to fill. And, I'm still hopeful that we'll learn something and find out if there are more things and better things that we can do with regard to this terrible plague. His stance, or his failure to take a stance, on a disease that started during his term, that his failure to take a stance is regrettable, is not a controversial issue. In fact, he himself in 1990 made comments that it was unknown, it was hard to tell what was going on with the disease at the time he wished. He said in 1990 that he had a magic wand to fix the problem. Those comments should be contextualized, as should the criticism, and looked at. First, it should be said that Ronald Reagan had no personal antipathy towards gay people. He hosted the first openly gay couple at the White House. He spoke to the log cabin Republicans and said they were a great group that would be a growing part of the Republican Party as governor. He had a chief of staff who was not out, and this was in the 70s, but it was well known that 
He was gay and Reagan knew it. Not only did he hire him, but he covered for him when it was shown that he was doing some improper payments with campaign funds and perhaps embezzling. Thomas uh, C. Reed, former Secretary of the Army and Reagan friend and campaign manager at one time, said in his movie days, he was commonly surrounded by gay actors. He was from California. He and Nancy had no problem with gays. But it wasn't just a personal issue. He did actually put himself on the line in a very politically inconvenient time for him. 1978, okay? Reagan is now a former governor. He lost his battle with uh, Gerald Ford for the nomination in 76. Everyone knows he's going to run for his party's nomination for president in 1980. And if he does it, he's going to run as a conservative. And he wants that rightward support that he got. Two people at his convention fighting for him in 76 were Philip Shafley and Jesse Helms. They're social conservatives. But something's going on in California in 1978. A conservative senator with Shafley's strong support, with the support of Anita Bryant, puts an anti-gay referendum on the ballot in California. And this is to... Um, this referendum bans teachers who are openly gay from teaching. It bans any teacher from actually saying anything that would support an openly gay person. The Democratic Party in California opposes it. The gay community, led by Harvey Milk, now a city councilman in San Francisco, oppose it strongly. Milk's role in the fight is well known. But they get an unlikely ally in the form of Ronald Reagan. And he doesn't just put his name on a statement. I'm against this referendum. Don't pass this anti-gay referendum. He writes an op-ed. And Reagan opposes this Briggs initiative. He doesn't just argue it on libertarian or narrow grounds, as some of the political establishment, including the Democratic Party in California, does, that, oh, you don't want this because it's a violation of free speech, not really supporting gays. No, he directly confronts the issues of how people view gays, and especially there being you know, some kind of perverts or something like that. He, he points out statistics that child molesters are no higher as a percentage in the gay community as they are in the non-gay community. This is 1978, and he is risking angering social conservatives. He does anger the state senator, Briggs, in California. Briggs, by the way, is an Orange County state senator. This is, polit this is Reagan's political support base that launched him as governor. Years later, activist David Mixner is going to say, we couldn't get the support for the Briggs Initiative below 55%. It was likely to pass. Reagan's opposition to Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative, killed it for sure. Now, a couple of notes. To be fair, Reagan's op-ed also included his opposition to another referendum suggesting a smoking ban, which had the effect of packaging the opposition in his op-ed piece as a kind of, uh, oh, there's two anti-libertarian initiatives I want you to oppose. He was also convinced by Mixner and his former chief of staff, Phil Battaglia, because of those libertarian grounds and the confusion in the schools that it might cause. Mixner and uh, Battaglia, his former chief of staff, tell Reagan, what if a parent doesn't like a teacher's you know, the grades that a teacher has given a student. They're going to use this initiative to get rid of that teacher. It's going to cause havoc in the schools. So 
Reagan's reasons, and, and Reagan bites onto that, Reagan's reasons for doing it had, had a more broader base than simply opposing anti-gay legislation. Nonetheless, he did. And none of that should quiet Reagan's heroic stand, absolutely critical to opposing that initiative, which is only noted quietly in Sean Penn's movie about Harvey Milk. What happened then? Because from the beginning of his presidency, a disease that mostly affects the community that he once fought for when it was most politically dangerous, he didn't seem to fight for when he was in the presidency. Deaths increased from 3,700 in the disease's first year to 44,000 during his time in office. Reagan first mentions AIDS in a press conference in 1985. And his first speech on AIDS was in 1987. Lou Cannon called his response halting and ineffective. And it's hard to argue with that. You also don't want to go so far. The activist Larry Kramer said Reagan was responsible for more deaths than Hitler. Didn't mention AIDS for seven years of his presidency. It's not actually true. Mentioned in a press conference in 1985. And his Secretary of Health and Human Services is pushing for funding. There's $8 million appropriated in 1982, $26 million in 1983 to try to research for the disease. The negative things during the 1980s get more linkage to Reagan than, than they, they might deserve. Um, he had aides in his White House, William Bennett, Gary Bauer, Pat Buchanan, that were shaping the speeches towards a conservative approach. Even his 1987 speech was written by an outside speech writer that Nancy Reagan secured. And it was kind of a committee-developed speech. No excuses. Reagan missed an opportunity to be a leader and speak out forcefully, both for the use of contraceptives earlier and to tell Americans, as ex-Governor Reagan had in 1978, not to fear homosexual people. Someone needed to do it. And instead of the man that many will rightly call the great communicator after he leads office, falls on Congress and to the Surgeon General of the United States, Everett C. Koop, a conservative who had argued against abortion, was opposed vigorously by the Senate liberals like Ted Kennedy because of it, the most visible figure on the issue. In 1987, he makes that first speech. He says that AIDS is not just a gay concern, not just a concern for that community, but a concern for all of us as Americans. As biographer Luke Hannon said, it was an important statement to make. It was also stunningly late. Had that statement been made in 1984, that would have been courageous. This is part six. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Apologize for the delays. It's been a big gap between part five and part six, but we're going to try to pick up some steam now, and I'll have other topics to talk about, sure, with the election. I do want to ask that if you like the program, consider donating. 
really can use your help. I'm always purchasing. I just purchased some new equipment in terms of microphones and cables and computer programs and software and the like, just to make the show better. You can go to www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com and help out there. Part 7 and Part 8 should come pretty quickly. Thanks for listening. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.